Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. It is Jen and I in the virtual studio of Zoom today. Hello, everybody. It feels like it's been a little bit since we've recorded you and I. I know. Yeah, the last time you and Melissa were using the the Zoom space, it's so nice that they let us use their their recording studio, you know? <laughs> yeah. When we've had the fun episode of our what 100th that hasn't come out yet because we're still okay. we're still needing so to record that even. next one yeah <laughs> but that is coming spoiler <laughs> alert for people <laughs> it'll be a post dated 100th episode <laughs> gotcha <laughs> we did it for fun because the 100th episode came yes yeah. well, we've got a lot of good things to talk about today yeah Just kind of back into the reading and the back to the basics series yes back to the basics and with this we're starting chapter three uh, which is entitled uh, components of emdr therapy and basic treatment effects so we're going to get into kind of talking about activating the target memory um, bilateral stimulation and information processing and then a little maybe some spicy conversation on the eight phases and what we at Beyond uh, believe in practice and teach. Yes. Anytime you say spicy, I think it draws interest. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah. It's one of those buzzwords for <laughs> Beyond content. If it's spicy, to, tune in. Perk, perk those ears up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how, do, how are you feeling about starting chapter three? Great. It. We were reflecting on this the other day, but it's interesting, like we're only to chapter three. And I think we've been in this, we were calling it a season, but I don't even know that it's a season. If it's it is, the direction. it's our, like longest season ever. <laughs> it's the direction of the podcast right now. <laughs> yes. Um, but so far, uh, I'm getting really good feedback and email responses from listeners and people commenting. So just to speak to you all who have like written in and, and shared things like, thank you guys so much for leaving those notes and comments and 
for listening in and trusting us to kind of walk back through this basic information from yeah, the earliest foundational pieces of EMDR. It really is a privilege to get to be a part of influencing other clinicians in these early building blocks of such a profoundly influential model. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking as I was kind of just preparing for today, I know in our basic training, it was required reading um, beforehand. Kind of required. Well, no. that's the that's the the quotes is what I want to talk about because in your experience as a consultant, how thoroughly informed do you feel like people are coming into basic training and even like just an awareness of the text? Yeah. What's interesting is I almost don't see a difference in readiness or like starting point regardless of if they've read it yet or not. And um, a lot of people come in like stress, like, oh my gosh, I didn't read that book. And I was supposed to read it before I started the training. And others are like, okay, I read it. And then I have no idea what I was really reading. Uh, Or they feel like they know. And then we get in. It's like, I feel like I'm learning it all again for the first time. So it almost feels like the majority of learners need to just like sit and be with it and be experiencing it and trying it um, as they're kind of bringing in this new information, but to have like an entire book of information before ever really like seeing it and trying it is a lot to integrate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Oh, give me one second here. Um, I totally agree with that. And I think that as you get into your basic training, you know, there's so much that's primed in our system to like, okay, I'm learning a procedure or I'm learning a step-by-step approach to this whole thing. And so I have to kind of just figure out like, what is this actually going to look like in my mind, in my body, as I go to start talking to my clients about EMDR for the first time, as I go to introduce BLS and we start the eight phases of it just informing and treatment planning and and target sequencing. It is a really, I think, thorough process that the book does go into some detail in. But even as I'm reading back through it now after years of practice, it's like, yeah, there's no way you could put what this process is into a book. Yeah. Hard to to bring it into just like words and explanation. And I think the best effort is through protocol through standardization, through step-by-step, but that's not really what it looks like in session. So there's still that experiential learning of I can have a guide like like this book or the step-by-step scripts, but I still have to be able to translate that to what does it look like in a real human-to-human interaction. Yeah, absolutely. And this process is not um, straightforward. I think we've made that, made that case many times. And we have built the Institute, Beyond Healing Institute, kind of around the kind of circular spiral nature of this work. Um, and we have a training coming up uh, in August of this year in our SIP, uh, Somatic Integration and Processing Case Conceptualization Model, which we believe is is what thorough case conceptualization for EMDR really looks like. Um, can help bring all of these eight phases together and inform the therapeutic relationship on where 
to go with all of the experience and life that we're both bringing in to yeah. the room. Yeah. The SIP training is not written specifically only for EMDR, right. but it is, I have yet to come into like contact or exposure with a case conceptualization model that fits with EMDR the way that this one does. Right. It really just like meshes together and so beautifully complements one another that through learning a synthesis of different theories and how to in integrate that information with our clients into the actual protocol and process of yeah. EMDR. So supportive. Absolutely. Uh, and so if you're interested and, um, you know, there's plenty of content on the podcast so far just about uh, SIP. So if you're interested to listen back on some episodes, um, just going through sort of our website or through your podcast player, you'll see that in the title of a few episodes. Um, and that can be a really great way to just familiarize yourself with the with the model and hopefully invite you enough to uh, or excite you enough to accept the invitation to come and be with us for three days along the journey. Um, but our next training is August 10th uh, through the 12th. So that's Friday. Uh, that's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and it's here at our home in Springfield. Yeah. And if you can't make it to Springfield, which we would love for you to, you can also attend virtually. So we do a hybrid option where the virtual audience gets to listen in and have your own moderator that's a trainer answering questions and engaging through Zoom. So it's very personal no matter what setting you choose. Yes. We'd love you in person if you can come. Absolutely. It's a totally immersive experience in person. <laughs> um, and we've actually had people that had taken it virtually at one point and then took it in person at another point. And they're just like, I just, I loved the in-person and this was just a really great experience. So we're we're really uh, lucky and and grateful to be able to provide it in person and virtually, um, but we'd love to have you either way. Uh, for registration information, uh, go to connectbeyondhealing.com and click on the Four Therapist tab. You'll see uh, somatic integration and processing uh, there, and you can enroll, and it'll get you right into where you need to be. Hey, one other resource I want to mention before we move on. I know we've got <laughs> just one minutes. more. Yes. <laughs> one more. Just give one more minute. <laughs> Um, our, I don't want to forget to talk about our drop in with beyond, um, group. So in our mighty, well, our beyond healing community platform, which is just like a free access, um, social media like platform, but where we have a lot of free resources and conversations and, uh, fun discussions on things. We have a special paid group within that that's $40 a month for access to a lot of group consultation. Yeah. I say a lot of, um, that's anywhere from like three to five 90 minute consultation sessions a month. And those are on a variety of different topics, anywhere from a general case consultation with EMDR, the specific advanced topics like working with couples, working with children, uh, the neuroscience behind bilateral stimulation, and then even some like business consultation that's yeah. on there, um, learning how to work with Excel spreadsheets to help support and track your business. So a lot of <laughs> dun, dun, dun. like <laughs> as scary as that can be to some sometimes, yeah. yeah. but having someone walk you through that. So that's a great resource. I don't want to miss the opportunity to mention 
Yeah, and that's on our website as well, um, connectbeyondhealing.com. And there's a specific tab under the four therapists uh, called Drop In with Beyond. And so if you're interested at all, it's um, a really low barrier to get some really high quality uh, continuing education hours. Um, if you're uh, through the National Board of Certified Counselors, uh, you'll get uh, CE credit for that as well. Um, and to LCSWs, we're trying to find a way to get you uh, credit as well. And psychologists, right now, we just don't have a good fit for that. So uh, sadly, we'd love anyway. for you to come. We'd love for you to come, but please know we're trying to find a, a solution to get you continuing education hours as well. Um, right. Speaking of that, the SIP training is approved also, 21, oh, yeah. 21 NBCC hours, but then also, correct me, is it 10, 10. advanced training hours? Yeah, 10 advanced, Andrea, which uh, it was so funny. I remember doing that application and talking to the Andrea board because 10 hours just feels kind of random in a way. It's like, why the difference? And which was interesting to me, I think it's illuminating of like what our field thinks about case conceptualization, which we could have a spicy mm -hmm. conversation on, mm -hmm. but that this can't be entirely relevant to EMDR, which we're, we were saying like, no, all of it is relevant to EMDR. So I thought that was interesting that it was awarded 10 hours. I think we'll, we'll get that changed someday. I, that's an advocacy effort. <laughs> that's an advocacy effort for sure um, of beyond healing. So that's funny. Um, but before we talk about anything that could get us into too much trouble, um, do you want to jump right into the chapter? Imdria <laughs> gods are listening. I, I, I know that. Yes. No blasphemy. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. So yeah, components of EMDR therapy and basic treatment effects. Reading through this chapter um, it is just continuing to to, I guess, surprise me again, after just practicing EMDR and, you know, training people like just through con consultation and things like that. It's just crazy how brief some of these things are, uh, in their description in the text, um, which again, we've talked about it. It would be impossible to fully elaborate on what this whole thing would look like. Um, but this chapter begins with the basic components of the EMDR processing targets. Um, and the first line is kind of where I want to start, which it says effective EMDR processing depends on effective targeting. Yeah. So I'd love to just start there. <laughs> That's a big statement like that. Um, I feel like that means so much. And I think it means something different to me today than it meant when first one or two times that I read that. Um, there's yeah. a lot of emphasis in EMDR on selecting the appropriate right target and that the target being kind of your access point into the system and being able to shift the way that these memories are being stored, therefore shifting the symptoms that are created as a cause as a um, result of them. And so accurate selection of a target is a really important thing. But what I think happens in EMDR a lot is there's an overemphasis on there's one specific memory that you have to find or certain memories that have to be found in order to be able to shift the system in this way or to clear through this material. And I think like finding and determining accurate targets isn't about like, oh, I have to find the exact right one, but it's about really being intentional, like 
um, does this target access? Or is it yeah. the access point to the way that this material is stored in their system? Does it uh, connect with the sensory material, the somatic pieces that are there? Does it uh, activate the affective um, channel and making sure that targets are really opening up that in the system versus it really being about the content of the memory? Right. So I want to include some of what is said in the text here, because even in this section, as brief as it is, there's a delineation between, quote, relatively uncomplicated cases and the alternative, which isn't named verbally. But that to me is a really interesting distinction because I agree that, yes, target sequencing and selection can look different if somebody's coming in saying, you know, I've got this single incident that I am really struggling with. But I think the way, and I want to see what you think of this too, this is the way I describe it to consult, uh, consultees as well, that if anything creates a traumatic response, it's not just because of what happened, but it's because of all that led up to that moment as well that made our systems vulnerable to the terror of that situation. So even if it was a single incident like car accident or something like that, the reason that it persists as a traumatic response in the body is not just because, well, that thing happened and now cars are scary forever. It was that it was particularly disturbing what happened because of the vulnerabilities that I had developed growing up all through life, experiencing X, Y, and Z in relation to cars. And that what happened made me feel so out of control that I couldn't keep bad things from happening anymore. And that's why, yes, it stands out as a single incident. But if you really start to look at it, it's actually a deeper exposure than might seem, you know, uh, apparent on the surface. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, I mean, that feels true across the board where that gets emphasized even more is in cases of complex trauma, developmental trauma, the response patterns when maybe a later in life event occurs, it's like such a mismatch right? Like there's the huge over or huge under reaction to that experience and an inability to really like uh, embody the somatic and affective pieces of it and, and accept connection there so that your system oh, yeah. can work through it and, and be able to regulate. That is going to take you right back to those earlier experiences. Yeah. I think I would say I think highly resourced humans all through development can still have traumatic effects. Oh, totally. But their systems have the capacity then to start to break it down and process and make meaning of it. And therapy can help ease that process and speed that process up. Um, but it's a more fluid, smooth interaction versus those. It's like, man, we do not have the resources needed to work through this experience. Yeah. And I think I love that language. I think that that really illuminates what we are as therapists are doing, talking about trauma in the first place. It's not that, you know, we talk about this in our SIP training as well, that we're not trauma hunters. Like I don't care about trauma for any other reason besides it meant something that was life-changing to that person and they're experiencing distress that they weren't previously. 
It's about the meaning to me of, of the traumatic experience. And what I'll say with clients often is, what did that moment show you? Mm. It's really as simple as that for me is like when we talk about the negative cognitions and we'll get into some of this, but that's really their interpretation of the event that showed me X, Y, and Z. Like that's really the trauma of why it matters so much to hold on to the fragmented pieces, regardless of if it's a, you know, the language of relatively uncomplicated case, or if it's a complex case, it's that these series of targets showed me something that I can't handle. Bridget, let's run it like an example on this, because I think what we're saying is really profound. If you have, let's go with the, uh, maybe someone's partner leaves them and you ask that question, what did that experience of you know a year ago, your partner choosing to leave, what did that show you? If one answer is, it showed me that I'm not like, I'm not enough to keep people around to love me. Compared to trust people. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to it showed me that there must be something better out there for me. And I wasn't supposed to live my life with that person. Those two responses tell you not much else about that experience, but tell you everything about the life they've lived before that moment. Yeah. And that is often some of the, the deeper pieces of where our processing will take us is why is it that your system brought that meaning to that really difficult experience. It was, it was painful. It was hard. It was traumatic for both parties, but the meaning they make out of it is very different. Absolutely. And that is not a predictable response in any way. Like, you know, to me, it, it's not fair to reduce the difference in those two responses that you just laid out to like, well, the person who responded with that wasn't how I was supposed to live my life. And so there's different things out there for me that person may not have this like super secure background that said, Oh, okay. It's obvious then that they, the reason they responded differently is because their attachment history was more secure than the one who responded with. I'm not enough for people. And that's, that to me is the whole, (laughs) like I've never said this before, but the phrase that was just coming to my mind, (laughs) I can't even believe I'm going to say it, but like, that's like the whole kitten caboodle. Like that's like the whole. <laughs> Let me ask you something. Do you know what a caboodle is? <laughs> I don't, but that's that's the phrase. What is it? Please tell me. For those of you that are of my age. Hey, don't um, limit this to age, okay? This is more than just age. Maybe gender and age. Okay. Those of you, it's a like a plastic, like little kit, a caboodle, and you open it. It's got these layers for your makeup and your hair clips and your barrettes. And oh, okay. That's amazing. And they're like bright, vibrant colors. And they have like a little lot. It's like a tackle box for girls. That's what I was just thinking, tackle box. Yeah. I was just <laughs> exactly. like, oh, it's like a tackle box or a toolbox. No, it's exactly like a plastic tackle box. Uh, yeah. Well, that name is way better than just like a tackle box. Like, why aren't we calling those caboodles? (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, so it's the whole kitten caboodle apparently, uh, of where we find the complexity of our work because it's not, and and I feel like that was really a lot of the hope in the nineties and early two thousands with the attachment research is like, Oh, we could predict based on informed emotional parenting and attunement, 
how well somebody would be able to handle a certain situation. And if we just resource parents and their children and we we try to help them, then that's going to insulate them from some of the really intense responses to traumatic events. But it's so much more complex than that. The reason somebody might experience something one way or the other is so individualized. And that's what really I think makes necessary and essential the relational approach to EMDR, because you just can't predict why one person might respond more adaptively, quote unquote, than another. Two things I want to say on that is, one, all of those factors you said do dramatically buffer, but it's not an an exact equivalent that because of that, they will never experience trauma that they yeah, suffer from this. And I'll give you an example in that situation, because let's say a person had this, you know, great attachment to both their, their mother and father and no divorce was there. And, you know, they just were completely blindsided by the ending of their relationship. And yet they still had the negative cognition. Ah. I'm not enough. You would not be able to look back and, and point to like a, a touchstone memory or something that like showed them, Oh, this is why you're not enough for people. It's like, and I think that's where a lot of clients kind of say, I don't know why it's disturbing me so bad because like my mom and dad love each other very much and they loved me and they stayed together and I didn't have any, you know, sensitivity around, um, you know, not feeling like I was enough for them. But then when this thing happened, it just completely capsized me. One thing it feels like, and you can correct me on this, is the thing it is predictive of is that individual's access to internalized resources. Yes. Now, that, that's a very subjective thing. What is a resource? At what point it was developed? Like, it doesn't always have to be like it was only accessed at childhood. Like, maybe it's their present day resources. Maybe it's a spiritual resource. Maybe it's, you know the relationship of therapist client in that moment, like who knows that can mean many different things, but the difference in those two scenarios of does it come to mean um, I'm unlovable or does it come to mean this isn't who I was meant to be with is indicative of what access that individual has to adaptive networks and internalized resources. Absolutely. And neurobiologically, what makes a resource adaptive functionally in the present is, can we generalize the resourced feeling of that imagined relationship or, or, you know, evoked relationship and see that, oh, it's actually, it's okay. You know, the, the traumatic event of the, the separation didn't show me that those relational resources are void. It said, no, I actually still feel empowered and encouraged and like, yes, I can grieve the loss of this relationship, but still feel actually like there's now possibility and opportunity and curiosity moving forward. But the fragility that that first person's reaction showed who said, I'm not enough. The fragility shows that those resources don't feel relevant anymore. It doesn't matter how close I was with my mom and dad or how, you know, well attuned those relationships were, something is disconnecting them from helping me and being a resource for me in the present moment. And so my default 
and running the emotional math of the most common denominator of all of the grief in my life being my me, it's my fault. I'm not enough. Yeah. I think that just to summarize, it shows that those earlier life experiences, the when you say like I'm the common factor of all these accumulations of similar enough experiences that where I'm yeah. the common denominator, they do have a, a huge influence on how we make meaning of the traumatic event that may show up later. But it is not exactly predictive, right? It's, it's not predictive, exactly. Down to that, it is something we want to be aware of and attuned to and know that if it if we're making sense of a, a recent experience in a certain way, there's indicators that there may be something else there or other experiences we're looking for, but we can't simplify it and become these trauma hunters as, yeah. as you kind of like, oh, we have to go down and hunt and find where that came from. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I don't know, I'm thinking of our listeners right now. Like, I wonder how this is, a, how this is hitting you to hear this, because I think that can be at first glance discouraging. Like, oh, dang, then like, what are we targeting? If we can't go back and find where this switch was flipped and just turn it back the other way and they'll be fine. And that's why I think this work is, and if you've been doing EMDR for any amount of time, you know that it's, it's more complex than that. Even if there is a cardinal touchstone event that this person is aware of where their phobia began or where their, you know, shame started, it is more ingrained in them now then would be simple to go back and just deal with that. And we'll see this miraculous change overnight. I think the practical application of that in EMDR means finding a recent expression of the, the issue, floating back, identifying the touchstone, clearing enough till we see the scales tip, like all the things we say in training, that being an approach, but not the only necessary approach. Yeah. The work of building new resources and adaptive networks could be just as effective as that process. The work of selecting uh, maybe what seemed to be smaller, like a, a group or a series of smaller, um, lower impact targets in the category, maybe just as effective for another client's system is like finding the huge major originating event. Like there's a lot of different treatment approaches that we could take. It's not just float back, find the worst and the first and clear those. Um, that is an option of many. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll get more into this as we continue in the series, but this is just a little soapbox of mine where that under that, that approach has the potential to undermine one of the barriers that people find to integrating the self, like the, the trait change level work that we're hoping they'll, they'll get to experience because, and this is just a funny thing about humans is that we surround ourselves in the present with reflections of the past. Mm -hmm. And so it can be so discouraging to do that float back work and then come and find walking representations of that memory in your life now especially when those are things like your spouses or your boss or, you know, a dynamic you're having with your child or something like that. 
it can be, again, so important just to understand that they may still need help generalizing and making meaning of that trauma work in their present relationships, that that might actually be the thing that keeps the symptoms going. Mm -hmm. So much here. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Cover it all today. <laughs> yes, that's right. So within this, um, you know, target sequencing or selection, they say regardless, the most useful parameters for treatment are the picture, the negative and positive cognitions, the emotions and their level of disturbance, and the physical sensations. That to me is, you know, clearly outlined in the assessment phase of working on a target, um, but. I would love to maybe just talk a little bit about why those things are significant. Yeah. Just briefly. Well, I was going to say, do we want to get into like SIP2 content? Yeah. <laughs> Despair our listeners, I think. Like, yeah. let's. <laughs> well, I think just as like a, just a blip is it's very correlated to the neurobiology and how our systems actually store information. Yeah. Um, and so that's in alignment in EMDR language. In a lot of consultation, I talk about that as the channels of processing, those channels all being very significant and important. And are we holistically mm -hmm. identifying, assessing, and exploring these experiences, not just from one component, but really from a holistic place. And so that including the body, uh, the somatic sensation pieces, but then also the affective emotional pieces and the cognitive aspect. Yeah. And there's your three channels, uh, just to be explicit about the body, the affect and the cognition. That's a really important to me. I think about it almost as like a, a the atmosphere of our assessment process, making sure that we're continuing to assess and make sense of how this target, whatever it is that we're working on, is affecting them in all those three channels. Yeah, and that's going to be the way in which through the assessment phase, we're activating that memory yeah. network in the system is to shift attention to each one of those. Yeah, and I think that's where you can find even some maybe vulnerabilities in your own system of do you find yourself favoring a channel and can you link that then to how your target sequencing and and your desensitization and reprocessing goes with the client because for me i know like in a cognition i might be able to tell a very eloquent story of that experience but i don't see an affective or a somatic shift in how it actually feels and moves in the body um so even just like paying attention to that in yourself of like, do you find your, do you find that you favor a channel or a type of content in the session? And is that maybe affecting your, your process and working with yeah, clients? If you and your client share a favorite collusion, act does that have, right? Like if we're both very cognitive or very somatic, um, what direction does that take us into? And are we finding balance amongst the processing? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you brought up the neurobiology because when we look at how EMDR as a theory approached trauma resolution, it's through the relevance and the, you know, kind of uh, prioritization of these elements to activate 
a target in the body. And this is consistent with memory reconsolidation uh, research just in general of how change actually happens in psychotherapy. And so if you haven't listened to the episode on memory reconsolidation with Bruce Ecker, go back and listen to that because that's exactly where we find the empirical support for the assessment process of activating from a three-channel perspective the content of that target memory and really finding its relevance to the disturbance they're experiencing in their present day life. We handled that so briefly. That was great. I, that was the point. I was like, we don't have time to talk about it. We're not going to get through this. Did we say <laughs> well, what we needed I'll, to? Like, <laughs> I just say I am holding back so many yes. because I think we'll, when we get into the assessment phase in the book, there'll be so much more to say on all of that. Yeah. What I would like us to do is kind of, and this is again, just kind of keeping in line with the text. The text goes just through each of those components, starting with the image, the negative cognition, positive cognition, emotions, et cetera. So just to touch on them briefly, um, I get this question a lot in consultation of like, how important are the specifics of each of these components? So if you've got a memory that you're going to work on, a target that you're going to work on, how detailed does the image need to be? How precise does the cognitions need to be? Um, yeah, so maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Mm, there's so much. Um, the famous answer we give to everything is it depends on the client. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It genuinely does. And I won't leave it at that because that's just a really irritating answer. The non-answer, yeah. It is, but that is accurate while also saying um, the whole point of the assessment phase is two pieces. To get a little bit of information of a baseline of where we started so we can track the process to a generalized degree. And then the second most important purpose of it is to activate the nervous system so that we can move into a process of memory consolidation. With that in, in mind, we need as much detail and precision as the nervous system requires for us to activate it. If yeah. that's very vague in general, then that's how much we need. If it's mm -hmm. very specific and detailed in order to get it activated, then that's how much we need. Yes. And that I love that answer. And I think there's real implications for how the processing goes depending on which side of that parallel necessity you've been trained in because so many I feel like are trained to see the specificity of each element of the assessment as what makes for an effective target processing. Like yeah. I'll go through consultation with people talking about, well, we spent this whole session basically talking about the image or this whole session talking about which negative cognition to pursue. And we just never really landed on one that felt right. And that to me, that, that undermines the second element that you highlighted where maybe it's not so important that we have the client satisfy our, as the therapists, uh, requirements for what each of these should look like. Maybe we should actually, as therapists cultivate a sensitivity towards our client of what seems to be accomplishing the overall goal of the assessment phase, regardless of what it looks like or sounds like, or, you know, anything sensory. Yeah. 
And if, if we can understand not just an assessment phase, but in all eight phases, we can understand the purpose and the utility of those techniques and that, those scripts that go with it in the little assessment worksheet. Yeah. Then we can modify it into the approach that's going to help have that result with that particular client. Because mm-hmm. there's so many experiences in assessment but that by trying to get all of those questions answered, I've done the opposite. <laughs> I've no longer activated the nervous system for that memory network. Yeah. I've now activated neural networks of like overwhelm and I'm not good enough to answer these questions. And what's wrong with me? Because I can't choose one negative cognition. And we're like yeah. working on something very different now and activating something else compared to activating that specific precise memory. And so in those cases, like to pull back on assessment some and say, it's just brief questions, or maybe I leave out components. Ah, is that bad to say, right? Like maybe I skip questions on the assessment. How dare you, Jen? For my client, that's actually going to pull us in a different direction. Yeah, absolutely it is. And that's the the impact the assessment process has on the relational the, you know, the therapeutic relationship in, in general, and even just talking about the image, um, you know, there's the way we're trained is to talk about picking an image that either represents the entire event or the worst part of the event. And for me, I've found myself sometimes asking the most important part as opposed to skewing it in one way or the other. Um, like what is the most, you know, what represents the most important part of this target or this memory Mm -hmm. and letting them kind of free associate into what that would be, regardless of if it's the the worst part, quote unquote, or something that's entirely representative, I'm letting their nervous system do the work of show us the most important part and Mm -hmm. going with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's so many tiny like modifications that we really Mm -hmm. can play within that um yeah if you understand the goal you can make it as yes creative as possible yes i think where i first learned that that was okay was when i took some specific trainings for children and like with adults i had learned this like very structured process and then i went to a child uh, a training for emdr with kids and i'm like is this the same yeah like what like is this a different kind of (laughs) like are we talking about the same thing here because there was art and there was play and there was puppets and there were uh, like assessments where it's like, yeah, it's okay to skip this. Or if your kid's young enough, like they don't have the capacity for all of it at once. And I'm like, adults aren't any different in that. Like we have limitations too, and we have certain yes. capacities. And so we are still meeting the client where they're at in that moment versus asking them to meet our certain standardized process. Absolutely. And that, I think that humility, even of looking at your client with the same kind of like capacity to play and be curious, um, that's just a really natural thing. I feel like for a lot of people at Beyond anyway, it's like just playful humans. And so trying to find ways of integrating that and, and accomplishing the goal of each of the eight phases uh, with that kind of sensitivity. I love that. And I think the same can be said for each of these pieces when we look at the negative and positive cognitions. I want to hear, so if we're going with like, what was the most important part and why does it matter? Like that's really the transition to see that negative cognition, not just as, you know, I am 
get a self reflection of that, like I am worthless or something like that. But to really make that link to the most important part of the worst part of that image, what it's holding is information about the self. That link is really important. What was the phrase you used before and what did that mean to you? Mm -hmm. What did that show you? Yeah. 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 I mean that, you know, what's the most important part and what did that show you? Like the combination of those two. Yeah, exactly. You're going to naturally hear I am statements out of that when, at least in my experience, when I ask that question, I naturally get I am statements. Um, And that's kind of what we're going for with that negative cognition is to see the meaning that is really holding a lot of the disturbance in response to the worst part or the most important part or whatever. Um, That's where the cognitive channel can really be illuminating of the distress as a whole of, okay, yeah, if if this most important part is holding the belief that I am worthless or that I don't deserve love or uh, that I'm not enough for anyone, that's why we go back to target. Like that's the whole reason that memory is important. And I feel like that's where with consultees, I find myself talking about the importance of memory so often because it's not that because of that one event, they learned the negative cognition. Mm -hmm. That's a really important thing for me is that because of that negative event or that impactful event, whatever it was, it was confirmation. It was illuminating of whatever it showed you. Okay, cool. So the positive. <laughs> Why do you laugh at me? <laughs> um, oh, I had jotted down. How do you choose a negative cognition? Um, I get that question a lot. Do you feel like we've talked about that? Or do you want to say anything on that? No, I think... Um... I think that might be best saved for the assessment phase. Yeah, when we get into that. There's a lot, to me, there's a lot of ways to talk about doing that and strategies around it um, and like why you might do it different ways. Yeah, what I will say, and I I jotted this down as well, is that um, in the negative and positive cognition segment of the assessment, the relationship between the therapist and the client is just so important. Like I, I jotted down relational discovery because I think that's where there's no right answer to any of these questions. And that's, that's tough. I think in our, in our culture, because we're asking them in the form of an, uh, of a question from a place of authority as the therapist to the client, like they're supposed to be a right answer. And we as therapists might even believe that, Oh, there's a right answer uh, that's going to unlock the whole thing. And again, we're trying to find the meaning of what did this experience show them and why is that significant? The positive cognition to me, there could be several that will, that will reconsolidate that negative cognition. It's about the meaning of what did this show you? And why is it important to you now? The positive cognitions can flow from there. To reference the memory consolidation episode again, um, the way that 
Career Sector talks about the schemas and identifying the schemas is such a fascinating contrast to an EMDR. We have a single negative cognition. We give a little bit of flexibility. If there maybe there's one or two that represent it, we can have yeah. that. Or it could shift. Yeah. Is the words he puts in his example with his client to represent the negative schema is like six phrases. That's <laughs> like a whole yes. phrase to activate and represent the nuance and the detail of the way the emotional learning of that system. Yeah. And all its representative parts. And so I think that's an interesting distinguishment between EMDR and memory consolidation and why have we gotten so precise to say like here's a list select one from these three categories and they need to all be in the same category versus like really exploring what was the emotional learning and what words can come to express and represent that versus having it down to almost like a checklist that we're picking from yeah or like a matrix that if we get it just right it's going to again unlock yeah. All of that stuff. And that's where for me, just naturally integrating memory reconsolidation frameworks into the EMDR process has led to so much more vivid and robust or rich uh, sessions that I've found more success in than when I was doing it more standard, I guess, of like sticking with just I am worthless or I am bad or whatever. If, and I feel like it's just more meaningful to clients as well. Like when they can understand, oh, this negative cognition came up because of this circumstance and what it means for me now is this, then it's just like, oh, then yeah, when we spent time tracking down the targets that make up that negative cognition, I can see the generalization link to the present moment so much more tangibly because of the way we did the assessment phase. So it's interesting. I was just thinking um, one of my pet peeves have always been in the assessment phase when we get too far into like deliberating the negative cognition, like have all this conversation about it. But when I think and have been practicing like the building and developing language around the emotional learning and the schema, I will spend an entire session crafting that with the yes. client oh. because it is this like, collaborative building of it to say, does that resonate? What else could express it more? Like what other components would we add into that? But once we craft it, even if it takes the whole session to do that, once we have that, that's the thing, that's the theme that we are mm. working on consistently, not only just target processing, but also resourcing. And that becomes such a theme of the work that we're doing. Yeah. So I would never spend an entire session recommending that someone deliberates a negative cognition, but maybe that some of that preparation work is crafting, you know, the words around emotional learning totally. that will theme that we're going to work on. And then once we get into assessment, we're just up and ready to go. We don't have to then have cognitive conversation on it. Yeah. And that's, that's really what I hope through consultation and just through continued development, clinicians can make the transition from a posture as an EMDR therapist to deliberate versus a posture as an EMDR therapist to craft or co-craft. Like that postural difference to me is exactly what we're, we're committed to helping clinicians find um, yeah. at Beyond. Cause it's just, oh, it's just so beautiful to transition like that. Um, Okay. I'm conscious of time. Um, 
yeah, they close the positive cognition by saying when the processed information of the target is subsequently triggered, it will now emerge into consciousness with the positive cognition dominant. So that's the explicit language of what the goal is of like finding that positive cognition. In addition, this linkage will allow the information regarding positive outcomes to be associated with the previously traumatizing material. So that's why when we talk about the crafting of that whole narrative, so to speak, when we juxtapose the positive cognition, it really does feel like it makes such generalizable sense to the current manifestation of whatever that meaning or whatever that previously uh, traumatically stored memory showed you about the world or yourself, why it makes sense now that, okay, this positive cognition can actually hold meaning instead of just this uh, pie in the sky type of like, oh, I, I just picked, I just picked the, opposite of the negative cognition and that's what i went with you know like it can be a tailor-made positive cognition i love the language that it uses if it shows up as the dominant yeah Um, that to me really represents the really real process of we're starting with a negative cognition that is like so true and a positive cognition at the beginning that they don't even really relate to And there is this gradual shifting that's happening. And sometimes there's an abrupt shift, but uh, when you feel that point where the positive is, seems like it's leading the processing, like it it doesn't mean we're not going to get another round of activation or dip into some more um, activating material, but it's leading the way. So as we pick up another piece or explore another loop of the traumatic parts of it, that positive cognition is right there and kind of guiding us and then it connects in. And so I think that's an important process is a lot of people think once we get to that positive cognition, it's like free sailing from there, really organic processing. So sometimes there's a lot of different loops and waves that come up with that. But once we feel the positive cognition kind of take lead, that's when we know we're moving into that adaptive side. Yeah, absolutely. And that to me is what you're talking about with the attunement of the feeling of these words and these pieces of the assessment, that's where it, it gets to be so tailor-made to the client and the therapist relationship. Because like, even if I'm working on the exact same quote unquote type of target between two clients, it feels totally different. It proceeds totally different and the outcomes are totally different. Um, so I think just giving yourself permission as a clinician to embrace that difference and that individuation uh, between your clients can be so important. Um, just to speak briefly, you know, we'll get into these two things with the sud of uh, the emotion and the physical sensation when we get into the assessment phases, but the same posture that we've been talking through uh, within the preceding elements of the assessment are, are similarly relevant here too. the subjective meaning of the distress of the emotion, the subjective meaning of the place of the physical sensation in the body can hold a world of meaning in, in themselves. Um, that's why we really encourage a patient and uh, relational um, approach to the assessment phase, mm-hmm. just to honor the meaning of all of these different facets. Yeah. And the attunement between therapist and client through each one of those, that relational piece 
uh, whole nother episode in of itself, but like just our attunement and presence in those very uh, provoking questions mm. is a therapeutic aspect of this work just by yeah. um, having that attunement throughout each one of those offers so much. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Um, the, the next portion gets into activating the adaptive information processing system. And this is where it talks about the different forms of BLS. And just a quick note here, cause I feel like we could have an entire episode on that as well. Um, the point we have to remember the point of all of this. I feel like that's a consistent theme um, between you and I of like what we talk about. Um, the point of BLS is to offer the client an integrating moment of focused attention on the emergence and progress of the target work that we're doing. So I get a lot of questions in consultation about the type of BLS that I should be using, quote unquote, the number of bilateral sets we're supposed to do, quote unquote, and the intensity and duration of all of these things. But if we remember the the point, the goal of BLS, like why it's a component of the EMDR process, it's to give the client an acceptable or tolerable invitation to an integrating experience of focused attention on the target material and the, the processing that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the highlighting of what is it, what is its purpose? And we can have a rule that gives us a starting point, especially as we're first learning, how do we know if it's like 7,000 passes versus 23? Like we have to have somewhere to start in some kind of rule. But then as you branch away from the first earliest learning start to like let loose of those rules shake them off a little bit and say i can i can know where to begin and i can now understand what is the utility of this mechanism of the model yeah now it can become something that is you know crafted for my client mm-hmm. specifically yeah and it, it just has I was, go ahead I was just going to say it has to, we have to remember that it is an invitation to their system. I feel like there's a connotation within BLS that you're manually forcing the integration of the hemispheres. And that to me is a glorification of the power of the therapist because that client still, yes, there is bilateral stimulation, quote unquote, happening, but the intended outcome of that BLS is a subjective volitional experience for the client. That's where I feel like this is why therapists can get so discouraged when they try EMDR and their client says, I'm not getting anything. I'm not getting anything. I'm not getting anything like over and over and over again. To me, we've lost the the purpose of BLS. If we continue to experience that looping, it to me has to go back to what we're wanting that client to experience is an acceptable invitation to focused and integrative attention on the target material. Mm-hmm. I want them to be able to sit with and feel through and imagine with as much of them as feel safe to be present as possible. The target process. An example of this I have coming to mind um, was a consultee I was working with just recently who 
had a, a really tough session that she had recorded and we were processing through it. And at, in it at one point, the client kind of like checked out and wasn't able to go any further in his processing for whatever reason. And um, the consultee said, ah, oh, now looking back, I realize I should have done longer, faster set right there and put so much uh, value on just how like a little rule, how long or how fast. And it's like, wait a minute, let's pause yeah. there because it's not that simple. Like, right. Like there's, we give, those are possible things to check and may have impact, but Bridger, your words are like, it's an invitation. Yeah. That client in that moment, it doesn't matter if it was longer, faster. It doesn't matter if you switch to eye movements instead of tactile, like that client's nervous system did not have what it needed to be able to accept the invitation at that point. I and freaking so love it. Step back and really look at more to do with the circumstance that had nothing to do with you therapists implementing a rule specifically. And it was much more about the case conceptualization. We had to get into like, what's really going on here? What was that content and what needs does his system have? And so we brought in all of that case conceptualization material to really have so much more meaning made of that moment than just, I needed faster, longer sets. Yeah. I love that. It's truly just honoring the invitation. Um, and I think that one of the pieces to me that feels so, I'm having an experience of deja vu right now. So I'm like hard to, it's hard to focus, but, um, one of the pieces to me to emphasize that the basic protocol sometimes dangerously assumes that your client has experience with that type of focused attention period. Mm -hmm. Like so many clients don't have predictable and actionable experience creating that type of focused attention within themselves so that when they come into a, an EMDR therapist's office, that might be one of their first moments of an integrative awareness, like what mindfulness practices would offer them. Like they don't know what it's like to tune into themselves and let the imagery of their mind work on something. It's like they expect the, the bilateral to turn something on in their body and just spontaneously something just emerges. Well, if they don't have a relationship with themselves that can cultivate that type of progress in their mind and in their body, then it is going to be a learning curve for them to, to learn from BLS um, to, as a facilitative mechanism in the EMDR protocol. I feel like none of this gets emphasized or never heard it talked about at the basic trainings and was not the way no. it was taught mine for sure. So it feels so real to the process and such an important piece to remember. It is one mechanism of the model, but it is a tiny piece, even though we think it is EMDR. And it's a That's tiny right. piece to the whole thing. Yeah. And that to me is just indicative of how objectified our culture is that when people think of EMDR, they don't think of AIP. They don't think of the past showing up in the present, they think of bilateral stimulation. Yeah. Because it's the fancy new weird stuff that we can see as the object. That's the gear. That's the tech. Yeah. yeah. The like, oh, it's that therapy with the weird light yeah. bar. Uh, I think this is a great way for us to kind of land the plane is to speak briefly to with this type of delicate attention in each of the eight phases, what 
the eight phases are doing uh, to prepare somebody to go through the EMDR process um, because they are very intentionally ordered. Um, and at Beyond, we talk a lot about preparation and history taking as really being a, a process in the in the core of the therapeutic relationship. And those are the first two um, the first two phases of the EMDR process. Traditionally, it was client history and treatment planning, and then preparation. Um, but for us, they are so intimately linked with each other in the resourcing process. And we'll talk so much more about that when we get into these things. Um, but from there, they then go into assessment, obviously, of choosing a target memory, desensitization, uh, re- uh, sorry, installation, body scan, closure, and reevaluation. Yeah. I was just having a moment of like, that all is just like, oh, yeah, 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 of course. And then I remembered the feeling of like hearing all of that the first time because yeah. I was a student that read the book before I went to the training. Nice. Same. <laughs> and reading that and just being like my eyes huge, like, oh my gosh, what does all of this mean? And how will I even do all of that? And um, it feeling very overwhelming, just how much there was to like hold an order and to learn. But as you say, each of those pieces, like they have, um, there's such a relational component if we choose to practice it that way, that it doesn't have to feel so regimented as the words sound just in their most objective form. Like installation isn't, installation sounds so like mechanical. Procedural, yeah. Yes, but like that really is one of the most beautifully relational aspects of EMDR is like really connecting with so Basically, what I'm saying is just like it's overwhelming to hear all of those words in that order all at once, but it all of it fits and flows naturally and beautifully into an organic human processing of memories and experiences and relationships. And the more we can mimic the system's natural way of doing it, the more impactful it will be versus turning it into a procedure or a really rigid system. Yeah, I knew that um, my posture towards EMDR was uh, from an academic standpoint when I came up with an acronym to remember the eight phases. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Do you want to hear it? I remember I it. You. You've never told me before. I know, because it's kind of silly because like I said, it's like, why would I, it just showed where my brain was at when, and ah. I read this book in my undergrad um, experience for the first time alongside uh, How to Change Your Past from Francine okay. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was writing my uh, capstone paper on EMDR. Um, and so I remembered it through How People Act Doesn't Imply Bobby Can Run. <laughs> okay. How People Act Doesn't Imply Bobby Can Run. History taking, preparation, assessment, desensitization, installation, body scan, closure, reevaluation. That's so funny. Yeah. I have it written in this book. (laughs) How people act doesn't imply Bobby can run, just so you know. (laughs) Bobby, if you're out there listening. (laughs) Can't run. At least we can't have any confidence that you can run based on how people act. Right. Even if people are like, whoa, Bobby's fast. You're like, I don't know. 
maybe see for myself listening have an acronym you've also created drop it in the comments because i would get it real i don't know if there's any (laughs) i would be so surprised if anyone else created an acronym but that was just like that's how i remember you know i my (laughs) i have an acronym for basically every element of every system of the human body because that's how my brain learned Uh human physiology and so i think that was just where that came from for me well those of you listening if you have one please share it and what if i titled the episode how people act (laughs) that would really throw some people off (laughs) at least do it for a little bit we can change it later we can change it later i'll do it Notice that I just released a new episode entitled How People Act Doesn't Imply Bobby Can Run. <laughs> oh my gosh. That actually might like get some new listeners. Be like, what is this? This is EMDR. This is EMDR. That's what this is. Yes. And Bobby, if you're listening, I'm not talking about you. I didn't know you then. It was some fictional character. Anyway. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> Come join our stuff. Like if you're listening, come join uh, all of our things. We would have a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, anything before we close? Yeah, I think so. Great episode. Me either. <laughs> okay. So we're on chapter three. Yes. So, oh yeah. Just to give some context for where we'll go, because we did, as ambitious as it was, we did accomplish our episode outline. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Uh, that means next time we're going to take the next, the the ha- the last half of chapter three. So we'll be talking about the standard three pronged approach, choosing a target, patterns of response between multi memory and single memory processing effects, and then uh, probably just landing the plane in what's it like to have some of this not go the way you thought it would. I hope you wrote that down so that we actually, I have it written here. It's yeah. In the book. <laughs> it's in okay. the book. Cool. That sounds good. Very cool. Well, thank you all for listening. And again, please remember to always keep an eye on the course calendar, uh, connect beyond healing.com for therapist tab course calendar. You'll get to see all of our individual offerings, uh, including new stuff, different webinars that we're doing. Uh, different trainings that we're doing, all things uh, beyond. Thanks everyone for joining. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.